Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you with me this, what is it, Tuesday morning now? Yeah, Memorial Day. Threw me off. Hope you had a good Memorial Day. Uh, boy, uh, do I have a story for you guys. Uh, interviewing the vice president this past Friday. I'm going to play the interview uh, at 11 o'clock. I did ask him about college football and sending your kids back to school. Uh, we'll get to that uh, in the third hour today. It's called a tease. I'm making you hang around. Uh, if you listen across the southeast, we got rain moving in, and it's weird. It's moving from the east to the west. Uh, so it's trickling in a, a, a tropical system from Florida blowing through. So uh, the Clarksville and Athens area, you're going to get hit first. Uh, Macon, you're going to get a little bit of rain. Roman Dalton, you'll get it later today. <clears throat> Just a rainy day throughout the southeast, headed into Chattanooga, uh, the Huntsville area as well, into, into the southeast. Now, uh, I want to begin. We we haven't we keep beginning with the virus, and there is news on the virus. It does, in fact, look like uh, it's on the rebound in Georgia. It is not anomalous, but expect uh, you know the people they're going to champion it. As as see, I told you so. Brian Kemp was wrong. That's not really what's going on. I'll explain that. But let me start with Joe Biden because Biden over the weekend, uh, it, well, it was on Friday actually. He had this big foot and mouth problem. <clears throat> Biden. Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States, who has a way with words, went on a uh, radio program and said that you weren't black if you were voting for Trump. And it's very interesting to see the mixed reaction on the left. Uh, so let, let me just let me let me back up a little bit. There is this unspoken issue with Joe Biden and black voters. Uh, Joe Biden has the loyalty of black voters because he was Barack Obama's vice president. The problem, though, is that Joe Biden's on record when it comes to race is deeply problematic. Joe Biden led a uh, criminal justice crackdown as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, and there have been numerous ads over the weekend that came out about Biden uh, pointing out that uh, Joe Biden essentially said they were going to criminalize everything uh, short of jaywalking. And a whole lot of young black men had their lives ruined by this crime bill uh, that some now say was an overreaction. Uh, it actually was a good crime bill, if we're going to be honest about it. It was a very good crime bill. Uh, but there were certainly uh, the, the fallout from it uh, wound up having a desperate impact on young black men, uh, particularly for drug related crimes. It is uh, Joe Biden who advocated and drafted that law. And it is Donald Trump who championed repeal of key portions of that law. Donald Trump actually assigned into law a criminal justice reform package that rolled back some of the things Joe Biden championed, which is an interesting contrast between Biden and Trump. And so there's this under the under the surface discontent of some in the black community that Joe Biden has ridden on Obama's coattails, but otherwise hasn't done a lot for the black community. So for Biden to go on a radio program and say that uh, you are not black if you vote for Donald Trump kind of ex uh, ratified for a number of people that, in fact, yes, Joe Biden, Joe Biden views race as political. What can help him and the Democrats, not can what, what can help the black community? Uh, the president, uh, remember the president came to Atlanta a while back and he wanted to run a coalition group on getting black voters to vote Republican. And one of the things he said is that 
Democrats have just taken the black vote for granted, and they do. And and it, no one really disputes the fact that the Democrats do take the black vote for granted. The Democrats, in fact, know that reliably 80 to 90 percent of black voters will vote Democrat. They don't have to do anything for the black community, for the for the black community to vote for Democrats. And the president wants to shake that up a bit. He's been pushing for it. Well, Joe Biden making this slip of the tongue, saying what he said, will exacerbate that. And there is just all sorts of divisions around this. I I, I got audio. I want to start first with this montage of Democratic reaction. You know, I'm a little revved up, okay, because this is a distraction. Vice President Biden spoke uh, to his comments on The Breakfast Club. He apologized. He clarified. He said he shouldn't have been so cavalier. But we need to move on and talk about the issues and what's really at stake here. The vice president shouldn't have said it. He apologized for it. Uh, but I really think the gall and the nerve of President Trump. I believe that Joe Biden was incorrect in, in saying uh, the statement, you ain't black. Uh, but I also believe that his apology was sufficient. That apology was given swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier. I apologize. To his credit, Joe Biden recognized within minutes that he had gotten carried away. I think uh, he has apologized and he should have uh, apologized. It was like, you know, one of those jokes that just falls flat. It's almost the end of the interview and you need to understand the context. I mean, Biden made an error. He apologized for it and just move on. I mean, we, we can obsess on this, but this is, in, in the scheme of things, this is not going to mount a diddly squat. Notice how they want to move on so quickly. Let, let's not pay attention to this. It, it, it's, it's funny how they want to hang on everything. You know, more attention was given, and, and I wish this was, a, a, this was made up, but unfortunately it's not. More attention has been given over the last four days to President Trump going to the golf course as Americans approach 100,000 COVID-19 deaths than to Joe Biden saying that uh, you're not really black if you vote for Donald Trump. You're not really black unless you vote for him. Uh, is it Yamichi Alcindor? L- listen to this. Based on my conversations with African-American voters, African-American Democratic donors, there isn't going to be a big change in the support that Joe Biden has based on the based on the remarks that he made on Friday. I will say there was a collective gasp at the idea that Joe Biden had the hubris to say that African-Americans aren't black enough and that he would be a person as a white man to tell African-Americans how to be African-American. That was definitely seen as not okay. Um, and his apology was needed based on the reporting that I have. But that was, that apology was given swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier. I apologize. President Trump is someone who has said all sorts of things, of course, like in December when he said that Jews um, weren't loyal if they voted for Democrats and that they lacked knowledge. The president has never apologized for that because that's his style. President Trump, apart from the few times we've seen him apologize, he rarely apologizes where you see Joe Biden saying, actually, I'm going to apologize. So what you see here is the president saying, I'm going to double down on everything. I'm going to take this big risk to make myself the reopening candidate, and I'll see where the tips may lie. Joe Biden, at least based on my reporting, feels very confident, as James Carville just said, that he's going to be able to beat President Trump, even if he doesn't leave his home, even if what he has to do is explain to people why he's the best president from his porch or his basement or his living room. He feels very confident in the way going forward. And President Trump, of course, is making the argument that Joe Biden is not mentally fit. We'll see where that argument lands. The president still has a lot of support. He has a lot of um, people that like his style. 
Yeah, they're not going to abandon him. And it's wishful thinking on the Republican side to think that. Um, but there is a problem. Now, uh, Ms. Elsendor, she's a, a PBS correspondent and, and an NBC political analyst. And she's right. They were kind of surprised he did it. He walked it back quickly. But there, there is a level of fallout to Joe Biden's remarks. You do need to understand. Younger black voters are not beholden to the Democratic Party in the way their parents or grandparents necessarily were. They're not as, as sold on the party. In fact, many of them want to move to the left of the Democratic Party and were Sanders supporters to a degree. But a lot of them are looking at the Republican Party thinking, hey, uh, the Democrats take us for granted. The GOP won't. And for Biden to do that uh, becomes problematic and it, because Donald Trump so aggressively believes he can get black voters. And here's the point. This is what you need to understand, because I can hear some of you yelling this. That Donald Trump's never going to get a majority or even a significant portion of a minority of the Democratic voters to vote Republican. Why waste your time, Donald Trump? I, I And I know people feel that way. Here's the problem for those of you thinking of this. He doesn't have to get a bunch All the president has to do is get a, a a portion of the black vote to vote for him. And he neutralizes advantages Joe Biden might have. It's true. The president won by 70,000 votes in the Electoral College in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. He needs to hold those 70,000 and he needs to gain. What, what, what does he need to gain? If he can gain 100,000 black voters, if he can gain 50,000 black voters. There's momentum in his direction. 100,000 black voters in his direction. That's not a ton, but it adds to the president's numbers and the Democrats have to stop him. And that's a problem when you got a gaffe machine like Biden and increasing and an increasing view within the black community that the Democratic Party takes them for granted. Uh, Pierre Thomas on ABC this week. And Pierre, let's let's come back to Joe Biden's comments uh, about black voters. Uh you heard the comments he made. He seems to, Charlemagne the God, the radio host, seemed to give him a little bit of a pass and a little bit of support. But does this really impact the black vote? Martha, note to older white male candidates. Do not tell black people what is black enough or who is black enough. It's just not going to fly. Now, I'm not sure how it's going to play. Uh, some of the younger African-American voters, uh, they don't like this notion of how Biden speaks about uh, black people. Sometimes they be, uh, believe in some cases Democrats take black votes for granted. Uh, they're not down with that. Some of the older African-American voters, uh, again, in a very diverse group, believe that when the president said things like s-hole countries and that they're good people on both sides uh, in the situation in Charlottesville where you had white supremacists and Nazis show up and literally kill a woman, that this does not matter that much in the grand scheme of things. But turnout is key, so it could matter. It could matter. Jonah Goldberg adds in. I think it's fair to say that some of the reaction, some of the outrage uh, uh, coming from uh, various people about Biden's remarks is largely for show by people who have said even more offensive things about African-Americans during their political uh, careers. But would you agree that the, the Biden remark was pretty dumb? Yeah, no, it was uh, it's, it was precisely the kind of thing that a lot of Democrats are worried about Biden doing again and again on the campaign trail. 
regardless of the context of, you know, identity politics and blacks in the Democratic Party, just his sort of in, almost his insecurity to have to take everything to 11 and go just a bit further than the facts or, or rationality sometimes allow makes a lot of people very, very nervous about Biden. And then the specifics of it is just it's 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 perfect fodder for the people who want to heighten the tensions on the Democratic Party um, in all sorts of ways. And we're going to see more of this over the summer. Yes, we are. One last one. And, and there really is a, a method to my madness in, in making you listen to all of these clips. Because you begin, I began intentionally with the Democratic montage of the Democrats circling the wagons of saying, this is no big deal. He apologized. He moved on. He moved on. Al Sindor is saying, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the black community, a lot of uh, don't, black donors to Biden. And th- there was a gasp that he said it, but he quickly apologized. They're willing to move on. And then you start, the, you, you get the, the idea from the Democrats. Of course, they're going to circle the wagons. But how do members of the press view this? They're starting to realize there are problems with Joe Biden. Last one before we go to break, Chuck Todd, to give you a a strong sense of where the establishment reporter pool on this is. And joining us now is Ali Vitale. Ali, obviously the Biden campaign on the defensive. And for those of us that have covered Joe Biden for decades, it rang very familiar. He'll say something. You're like, oh, you can't say that. Um, There was the clean and articulate comment about Barack Obama in 08 is just among the more recent ones he's done. So this is not the first time he has basically shown how insensitive he can be with when it comes to some some language at times with with uh, race. Yeah, Chuck, I feel like the word of the primary when you were talking with sources on other campaigns were them reminding of Joe Biden's propensity towards gaffes, towards misspeaking. And largely throughout the primary, he managed not to have too many of those moments, at least not in any major way that derailed his candidacy. But at the same time, this is a moment that reminds that he does still have that propensity towards misspeaking. <laughs> a propensity towards misspeaking. I like Ali Vitale. Yes, a propensity towards misspeaking. And he's going to do and see, here's the thing. Donald Trump does it, too. But it comes with the it comes with the calculation with Donald Trump, with Joe Biden. uh, The Democrats like to have this view that Biden is so much better than Trump. He's smarter than Trump. He's more articulate than Trump and on and on goes. And really, he's not. And the media is beginning to realize there's a problem. So you start with the Democrats rattling the the, circling the wagons, rattling the troops, saying, oh, it's no big deal. You apologize. We're moving on. To the, the more dispassionate people, some of whom still want Biden to get elected, but the more dispassionate people thinking, oh, wait a second, this is what everybody was warning us about. What have we done? Well, you've you've nominated a gaffe machine who says these crazy things and is not the same man he was four years ago. That's the other unremarked thing here. Everyone in the media wants to turn a blind eye to the fact that the Joe Biden of today is not the Joe Biden of 2016. And so he's been very, very guarded. Except, and, and when he comes unguarded, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, everyone said, hang on, Joe Biden, you're too scripted. You're doing too safe. You need to do more. So he goes on this radio program, has an unscripted, unguarded method, and oh my gosh, getting back in the basement. I mean, now you're having these think pieces. Joe Biden campaigning from the basement is a smart idea. Well, of course it is. Look at what he's saying out there. It's me. It's me. Welcome back. Uh, y'all, 
Okay, the phone number, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Happy to take your phone calls. And by the way, thanks to Chris Burns for filling in for me on Friday. I, I intended Friday to be a day off and instead was summoned to be interview uh, to to interview the vice president, uh, which was great. It was an exclusive interview, and I will play it for you at eleven o'clock, where we talk college, the return of college football, and what happens if there's a viral rebound. Uh, I'll get it for you then. But thanks to Chris Burns for filling in. If you need a financial advisor, he actually is mine. Uh, you can go to dynamicmoney.com uh, and appreciate him very much doing that. Y'all, people are out and about, and the media is very upset. Really upset. Uh, with people being out and about. I have seen, in, in fact, CNN this weekend, it was kind of bizarre. Uh, yesterday for Memorial Day, there were a bunch of takes on CNN about how many people were out and about and how shameful and appalling it was and people were, were not social distancing and the virus was going to spread again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is that all the video clips that CNN showed were people social distancing. There was one clip of people jogging, and there were there was distance between them. I was like, why are they upset with this? And yet they were. And we're seeing more and more of this of the shaming going on on the media of people not doing it, uh, people people not social distancing, of people not. Uh, staying home of people not wearing masks. And listen, I, I get the mask concern. I, I truly do. I try to wear one in public. And in fact, I, I had somebody get snippy with me uh, over the weekend because I was at the grocery store and I did not have a mask on. And, and they were wearing a mask and said, you 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 don't have your mask on. I, I hear you on the radio telling people to wear a mask. Why aren't you wearing a mask? And I said, because there aren't a lot of us in here. And my wife is washing my mask. I've got a cloth mask and, and I thought it was in my car. I was going to wear it, but it was um, in the washing machine. So in any event, I couldn't wear one. And there were there, I am noticing a number of stores. There, there are some that are making people wear masks and yet they're not offering masks to people who don't have them. Uh, they're, they're allowing people to come inside. Uh, I get the mask thing, but this, this uh, being crowded on the beach. I mean, for example, if you actually pay attention to the pictures that are coming out from CNN this weekend, you pay attention to the, the crowds on the beach, the crowds on the lake, the crowds everywhere, the crowds in the parks. It's clusters of families. We actually had church on Sunday. We went to church on Sunday. We did. And there were about 200, 250 of us. And for those of you familiar with downtown Macon, I go to First Presbyterian in downtown Macon, and they closed off Mulberry Street. And we all spread up and down Mulberry Street, street uh, family to family, each family in a small cluster together, uh, keeping six feet apart, uh, some around the side of the church. And uh, the preacher stood at the, the front door of the church. He had a, a loud system so he could speak. They had a, a guitar and a piano plugged into it as well so we could sing songs. We wanted to meet and sing together. And so it was great. Everybody spread out. And the only complaint is, you know, I really do. The older I get, the more I really love the old, old classic hymns. And I don't, I, I don't know that we do enough of it. I think you can overkill it and just do those. There's some great new stuff. But every once in a while, just play one of those really good old. Can we not do the old rugged? Are, are we too PCA for the old rugged cross? <laughs> 
But in any event, it was it was great. It was great to be with the body of Christ. Um, meanwhile, in Chicago, the mayor of Chicago is running police raids, dragging people out of churches for for not social distancing. We social distance on a street. It is possible to to have church. I hope we do it again. It was great, but it it, it did definitely start to get hot. Still, the shaming by the media of this stuff and, and the obsession with the president's golf game, it's ridiculous seeing the way the media is covering this stuff. Uh, dare I say bias? Yes, there is a real bias by the media in this stuff, and it's sad. When we come back, the cases in Georgia look like they may be going back up. I've got details for you. Hello there. Welcome back. The phone number, if you want to call in, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Hope you had a good Memorial Day. This reminds me, I have them locked and loaded and ready to go. Today, at 12.15 p.m., if you are on the recipe list, you will get a recipe. I made jerk chicken legs this weekend, and they were fantastic. Philip can attest. His whole family abandoned him this weekend, and so we had him over on Sunday and fed him. And I made these jerk chicken legs. I, I saw this this guy in Great Britain had this recipe on Instagram, and I decided I would I would kind of match it and made my it was fantastic. If you want the recipe, text the word recipe to three three seven seven seven. I will get you the recipe at twelve fifteen uh, via email. You'll get a text back. What happens? You text recipe to three three seven seven seven, and then you get a text back saying what's your email address. You reply to that with your email address, and it subscribes you. Be there by twelve fifteen, or you won't get the recipe. That that full disclosure there. Okay. The media is obsessed with the president going to play golf. Uh, they, they are. CNN has a fact check out. Trump has spent more, far more time at golf clubs than Obama had. At this point, I'm old enough to remember when Barack Obama was president of the United States and the media told us that it, it did not matter. And, and why were Republicans obsessed with Obama's golf game? Was it because he was a black man? Was it because he was a black man playing a white man's sport? This was actual commentary in the media at the time that Republicans were obsessed because of racism. Uh, they, they didn't like a, a black man playing a white man's game. Or I didn't even know golf was. I, I guess the Scots invented it. So, uh, it, But nonetheless, uh, that, that was commentary at the time. And we were told to get over it, move on. Well, now the media is obsessed with the president. Let me read you the opening. Criticized for golfing twice on a Memorial Day weekend during which the U.S. coronavirus death toll approached 100,000. President Donald Trump responded Sunday and Monday by drawing attention again to former President Barack Obama's golfing. Oh, good gracious. Barack was always playing golf, he said in one of five golf-related tweets. You know, the media is now stuck in the president's head here and, and vice versa. The president goes golfing. They've got it. It's just that this abusive feedback. You know, I wrote about this this morning. You know how you go to a, a, a restaurant and it really makes you mad because the service is terrible. The waiter, you got to flag him down because he's not coming to check on you. He doesn't refill the drinks for you. The order gets screwed up, and then you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning puking your guts up because you got food poisoning. You you tell all your friends, don't go to this place. You get on Facebook and say, don't go to this place. You get on Twitter, you say, don't go to this place. You you, you do a, a, a live stream on Instagram about how horrible this place was, and you get on Yelp and you write nasty reviews saying, oh, this place was terrible. The service sucked, and I got food poisoning. Don't go eat there. Now, you do that with someone you've also had a relationship with, a physical relationship with. 
And it's just, it, it becomes really nasty. And that's essentially the media and Trump at this point, that they had a near sexual relationship, the media and Trump did. I mean, they were in bed together all the time. You, you had, uh, Donald Trump was going on MSNBC shows. He was going on CNN shows. They loved him. He was there all the time. I mean, he, he was there all the time. I, NBC had a TV show with Donald Trump. He was going to the award ceremonies. He was going on these people's shows. He was calling in. He was showing up. They loved him. They loved him. And then he chose the hicks and rubes of flyover country over the New York elite. And my goodness, the world has never been the same. They had to get a divorce, and it's been a nasty divorce. And we're like the kids stuck in the divorce between the media and Trump. It's horrible. They're not going on. It's not just the, the he gave me food poison and, and the service sucked. It's a he, he got me pregnant and then cheated on me sort of thing. It, it's horrible. And that's what happens here. And, and it's just the, the sick, demented uh, codependency between the president and the press that the rest of us have to put up with, and people are burned out on it. And the press, it, it's so funny to watch the media now who for years told us about, bro, get over this, get over this. You just don't like him because he's a black man. That, that's what members of the media told us. And now they're obsessing with Donald Trump over this stuff. What's their problem with an orange man? I have no idea. But they are obsessed with, it, it's just, it's demented. The way in and the feedback. And listen, and the president is doing himself no favors with this Joe Scarborough killed a woman stuff. That's that 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 is demented in and of itself. For those of you who have seen these things and you've read these stories, and you're wondering what's going on. Uh, there was a, a young woman who worked for Joe Scarborough when he was in Congress. I think she was in her she was in her late twenties. She had a heart problem, and something happened with her heart. Uh, she fell over and hit her head on a mantelpiece and hemorrhaged and died. And there, for years, conspiracy theorists spread nasty conspiracies that Joe Scarborough had murdered this young woman, which wasn't true. Uh, th there was an autopsy. Every the, the woman was married. It's just, it was a sad, sad, tragic thing. She had a heart problem. And for the president over the last week or so to start re-upping these Joe Scarborough killed this woman stuff is in and of itself just, bad. He shouldn't do it. It's a distraction and it's gross. Uh, don't accuse someone of murder ever. I mean, I, I don't care whether you like Joe Scarborough or not. I actually do like him. He's a friend. Um, but it's just, it's, it's gross to, to spread these conspiracy theories. And, and it's just the, the whole thing between the press and the president. And I, it, it's, it's, you're not just watching the train wreck. You're part of the train wreck because you can't escape it. And we need to move on from it. And I wish we could. But every time the president seems like he's going to move on, the press tries to drag him back. The stupid story from CNN. Oh, he's golfing. He's golfing. I mean, the, the number of people, in fact, I saw one reporter, not a CNN reporter. I think it was a, a, a New York Times reporter tweeting out a picture of the president playing golf on, on Sunday saying this is how he spent his Memorial Day. No, Memorial Day was Monday. And he was actually at the, at the, the cemetery on Monday. And yet they want to tweet this, oh, this is the president playing golf on Memorial Day. No, it was actually Sunday. You got your timeline wrong, and you know it, and you won't fix your tweet because you're lying about it. You are behaving again. This is the president's superpower. He makes other people behave in the way they claim he behaves. And I think that's true. Now, we need to move to the story on Georgia. This is important. The number of cases of COVID-19 in Georgia is going back up. And you will hear a lot of I told you so's this week. Um, 
the the seven-day moving average appears to be trickling back up. And the reason is because uh, there were 959 confirmed cases on May 18th, which is an all-time high in Georgia for testing. Now, some of those are preliminary cases. We need to check it, but it is a huge spike. Now, every day around this, this is what you need to know. Every day around it is a pretty big, uh, is completely different. So let's take, for example, um, May 13th, 751, May 14th, 771, May 15th, 807. And then on the 20th, a big, or I'm sorry, on the 18th, a big jump to 959. What on earth is going on and why is this happening? And then, by the way, it goes back down again. And people are, well, what's going on here? This is the governor. It's all the governor's fault. It's it's not really the governor's fault. And this is what you need to understand. 18 states now are showing a rebound. Some states that open, some states that, that have not fully reopened. Virginia, the cases are going up and Virginia is still on lockdown. So what on earth is happening here? Well, if you look, part of this is renewed and expanded testing, particularly within the Hispanic community. Uh, expanded testing in the Hispanic community is revealing cases of COVID-19 we did not realize were there. We knew that there had to be a problem because of the Gainesville poultry situation, and they went in, they got very aggressive, they've been testing. So, of course, of course, they're going to see a rebound in these cases. But not only are is there going to be a rebound in the cases, um, what they're also going to, what you're also going to see is that there are some isolated pockets of the virus in, for example, nursing homes in Georgia, in the poultry worker community, the immigrant community in Georgia, and the farming community, there are rebounds. But here's the thing. We know where they came from. We know the virus isn't spreading communally right now. It's just in these pockets of the community, and we know what to do about it, and we're doing it. So you're seeing this, this spike, but then you're seeing the decline as well. And that is the aggressive treatment response in Georgia. They're doing what they said they needed to do to, to make this thing go away. And, and that should be where the focus is. And unfortunately, that's not going to be where the focus is. So in other words, all of the people said, oh, we're going to see this rebound. We're going to see this rebound three weeks. Well, we're more than three weeks out. We're four weeks out. And now they're going to say, told you so, told you so, told you so. What they're going to ignore is the fact that uh, the state proactively went in found where they presumed cases would be, ramped up the testing, and they were able to contain it from spreading, which is what they said they wanted to do. Georgia should be the model of this. The best they have now is this um, COVID-19 conspiracy theory that the the governor and uh, Dr. Toomey and the Department of Public Health, all of whom, by the way, are careerists, they're not, they're not uh, politicians, they're careerist bureaucrats that somehow they're covering for Brian Kemp. They're rigging the data, don't you know? It's not really the case. That's not really what's happening. Uh, we're actually seeing a, an overall trend and decline. There is a little bit of a bump. It is not anomalous to Georgia. It is, um, it, it is a situation where there was spread in certain communities that we found. But here's the other thing. We're also, in fact, a, a buddy of mine sent me a text and said he got an antibody test and his came back positive. Now, it, the, the, we got to be careful with some of the antibody tests because they do sometimes pull out false positives. But I'm hearing this from a lot of people, which is actually really good news. Now, why is it really good news? Well, because it shows that the virus has spread more rampantly than people assumed. 
and that people handled it better. And so the death toll is actually less. Now, uh, there will be people who have died, we know, who they didn't, no one knew it was COVID-19 at the time. And so we may see an upward uh, trend in the revision of the death count. But overall, an upward trend in the revision of the death count coupled with an upward trend in the number of people who are infected is good news because it means fewer people overall died. The mortality rate goes down even as the infectious number goes up. The hospitalization rate goes down. The ICU rate goes down. The percentages all go down the more people have it. I'm More and more people I'm finding are getting tested. And now some of the antibody tests are flawed, and the antibody tests can pull a, a false positive. But if you know anything about statistical sampling and you know the rate of false positives, what you can do for certain is you can extrapolate out from the false positives to the actual positives and determine that more people had it than we knew. And they didn't go to the hospital. And they didn't die. They weren't in ICU. And then we can also better reassess the rate of spread. Because if people had COVID-19 and they weren't in the hospital and they were treating it like they presumed they had the flu or something and it didn't spread within their household, that's a really good sign uh, that the virus is, is not as bad as originally thought. Now, we can fight for the rest of our lives about a lockdown, a shutdown, or whatnot, but given what we knew at the time, it was certainly right. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has come out and blasted the modeling. Uh, one thing, though, that, that gets missed in all of this, Cuomo blasting the modeling, uh, he's blasting the modeling to some degree for understating the effects. So, yeah, Cuomo came out. I was going to play the clip this morning uh, and say Cuomo is now coming out and casting down on the models, and he is, but but he's doing it from the other side. Uh, that, that yes, a lot of the modeling was wrong, but some of the modeling that seemed to be right also understated what was going on. And you do need to be mindful of that. But overall, your bottom line here is that the cases in Georgia are going back up and it's nothing to panic about. It's nothing to panic about because we know where the cases are. We know how they got there. We know how to contain them. We know they are containing them. And we can see where the spike is and we can see the related decline after the spike because of the containment strategy. But, you know, the media, where's the song? I I think I keep the song. Remember this, uh, back when I was was little, my grandmother loved Hee Haw. That's right. You remember Hee Haw. And Hee Haw, they had that great old song, the the uh, Gloom, Doom, and Despair. And maybe I don't have it anymore. But I, I used to play this song all the time. The, the, the gloom, the doom, and the despair over all the bad news out there. And that essentially is what the media wants us to do. Is to focus on the gloom, the doom, and the despair. And not actually focus on the fact that we're on the rebound. Economically, we're on the rebound. With the virus, there are certainly spikes in the virus, but we've learned how to contain the virus, it looks like. It looks like life will go on. You know, in in the third hour, I'll play you my interview with Vice President Pence, where we talked about what's it going to look like to reopen? What's it going to look like to go back to school? What's it going to look like for football? And more and more, we've got answers to these things. There are concerns out there. Let's Let's not overstate the good news. But let's not understate it either. There are concerns, folks. There are concerns. But it looks like we're headed in the right direction overall. As you know, there have been a few cases, not widespread, but there have been a few cases, one in Arkansas, some in California, where people, some of them asymptomatic with COVID-19, go to houses of worship and spread, uh, and there are more infections, and in some cases, even death. Is it safe to open all houses of worship across the country today. 
I think two things happened on Friday. Um, the president asked for the CDC to make sure there were guidelines posted to make it clear of how churches could open safely. And during then the press briefing, I made it clear that it's very important for governors and communities to let people know where there is still high levels of virus, like it is here in Washington, D.C., in Chicago, and in L.A., and to really ensure that those with vulnerabilities are protected. So although it may be safe for some to go to churches and social distance, it may not be safe for those with pre-existing conditions. And that's why in phase one and phase two, we've asked for those individuals with with vulnerabilities to really ensure that they are protected and sheltering in place while we open up America. Can I just say something about this advice? She's right. That's Dr. Burks talking with Chris Wallace. And she's right. And, and let's not dispute she's right. But increasingly, we do need to be mindful that uh, those with pre-existing conditions, those with poor health, uh, all of us with, with a virus for which none of us have immunity built up, need to be mindful of the fact that if you're if you're sick, you, you got a bad immune system, you should be taking precautions anyway. And a lot of the advice that I think is going to come forward now with this virus is also advice that can be applied to the flu and everything else. And we got to be mindful of that as a people. We got to be mindful of that as a society. Uh, there are real precautions that we as a people need to take. But also, there are real issues that we as a people need to be mindful of when it comes to fighting and combating the virus and, and going on with our lives. Uh, wash your hands. Stay away from people who are symptomatic. Now, part of the problem with this virus is it appears you are most contagious when you are uh, least likely to know you have the virus. That's some of the new data that's come out about this virus that uh, you are most highly contagious when you have the least symptoms. The more symptoms you have, the less contagious you are. That's why it's so troubling. But like, for example, our, our church on Sunday, we met outside. We wanted to sing. So we all spread out down a street uh, and through a park. And the preacher had a, a PA system, speakers, and, and we could all hear him. I've got friends who sat on their truck tailgates, and, and we put out chairs, clustered together as family, so we could sing and be together as the body of Christ. It was great. It was really, really good. Uh, I, I, I've been trying to be mindful of tithing even when not in church, but I've been really terrible about getting the whole family up and participating on Sunday. My wife is better about it than the rest of us. She, she's always up watching the sermons on Sunday, and, and we've done it occasionally. Uh, and if not, I've tried to supplement myself, but I'm just not good at it. It's like going to the gym and exercise. I, I've discovered I suck at home gym. I, I've got all the stuff for a great home gym, and I suck at going to. I'm going to the gym this afternoon, and it's just going to be one on one, me and the trainer, no one else there. Um, we'll socially distance from each other at the gym, wipe down all the equipment. We'll be safe about it. But I am terrible, terrible at at home gym, and and I'm pretty bad at home church. I've discovered, and so it was great to be with the church family on Sunday. But we wanted to sing, and so we did it outside. We did the whole church service outside. It was a bridge because of the heat. It started at 10. By 10.45, it was done, uh, but we were sweltering. We abridged the songs. We had the prayers. We did the Apostles' Creed, which I love, and then we went home. I was actually kind of amazed at the number of people who stood around and visited. I mean, we left. Uh, we visited. We were gone by 11, so 15, 20 minutes, we stood around visiting with people and, and stood at a distance, talking loudly so each other could hear. 
And a lot of people were just, they were together. They wanted to see each other. They hadn't seen each other. They hadn't seen people. We are a communal people. We, we need to be together. Here's Dr. Fauci. Depending upon the dynamics of the infection in the particular state, city, region, county that you're in, we certainly want to, in a cautious way, reopening. We can't stay locked down for such a considerable period of time that you might do irreparable damage and have unintended consequences, including consequences for health. And it's for that reason why the guidelines are being put forth so that the states and the cities can start to re-enter and reopen. Yes, we got to have those guidelines. What is really interesting here, and we need to get into this when we come back, is that as Dr. Fauci himself, who has wanted a sheltered in place, is starting to come out and say, hey, we can't stay sheltered in place forever. We've got to find a path forward. Democrats are coming out saying, no, no, no. We must shelter in place forever. There's a reason. Turns out that the economy looks like it may just rebound. It turns out the economy is actually looking like it It may very well be able to turn things around. Right now, it is uh, 58 after the hour on Tuesday, May 26th, and the Dow is up 575 points right now. The Dow is, or the NASDAQ is up 109 points. S&P up 52. The New York Stock Exchange up 302 points. The economy looks like it may be turning the corner, and that is bad news for the Democrats, actually. And they don't like it, so they want you to shelter in place. Do you know that 75% of Americans use old, worn-out bristles that aren't very effective with dealing with their teeth and tooth decay? And a lot of us, myself included, don't floss regularly. You need to do a better job. Let me tell you about Quip. They're not just a show sponsor and advertiser. They actually are the toothbrush that I use and have used well before doing this sponsorship. My wife has one. My daughter has one. I have one. We're probably going to have to get my 11-year-old one, but he can barely remember to brush his teeth at this point. But nonetheless, the Quip actually is a great toothbrush. It has a timed sonic vibration. Every 30 seconds, it pulses. So as you get the dentist-recommended two-minute routine, they've got a size-down version for kids. It's just a well-designed toothbrush. I I have had some of the expensive, you know, you can get the $99 toothbrush with the supersonic vibrations and whatnot, and it's so poorly designed, and you got to take the charger with you, or it's got a giant battery backpack. This is just like a regular toothbrush, and it takes a, a AAA battery, and every couple of months, they send you a new brush head with a new battery, so you can keep a fresh toothbrush. I, I can't rave enough about Quip. I really do like it. It really is a great design toothbrush. I have no longer been getting new toothbrushes because I just keep my Quip and I get a new brush head, you can go to quip.com slash Erickson right now, and you'll even get your first brush head refill pack for free. That's your first refill for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's getquip.com slash E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Quip is the good habits company, and they'll make great brushing habits for your teeth. Your teeth will thank you. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you with me this morning. Rainy in parts of the southeast as this tropical system moves in, and it's hot too. That's all good news, actually, with the virus. Uh, Hot and humid 
we know uh, hinders the ability of the virus to spread. So really good news. As I mentioned in the last hour, Georgia is uh, starting to see an uptick in the number of cases. 18 states actually are seeing upticks in the number of cases. That's nothing really to be alarmed about at this point. Uh, And the reason, particularly here in Georgia, I'm sure there will be I told you so's that the governor was starting too early with his reopening. But this is happening even in states that delayed and and the timing is, is not really coincidental. It happens to coincide with a ramp up in testing, but not just a ramp up of testing, a ramp up of testing in in, uh, immigrant communities, particularly Hispanic laborers in poultry and beef facilities and on farms where the virus has spread largely unchecked and they've needed to figure out ways to contain it. And so they've they've done good testing and they're containing and they're working in those communities. Uh, So we should not be worried or fret about this uptick. It is not happening uh, in the community uh, like it had been happening. It's happening in particular communities where it is contained. So that is very good news. Uh, I've got to tell you, um, the the issue of the media and the president, I said in the last hour that the media and the president, it, it, it's like we're, we're the kids in a nasty divorce between the president and the media. We're, we're, we're the kids in a nasty divorce. And the president and the media are savaging each other. There is a level of, of contempt for each other that there used to not be. And because there used to not be, because there is, you know, so for example, I, I know someone, I don't want to get into names and, and they're not listening even so, um, but I know someone who genuinely hates my guts. Now, there are a lot of people who hate my guts, let's just be honest about it, uh, but this person actually used to be a very good friend and that person began to disagree with me politically and that strained our relationship and I tried to be cordial and friendly with the person and and they tried to be cordial and friendly with me and and we tried to make time to to spend time together but politics became so poisonous and and increasingly as I was trying to move away from really just just having to talk about and engage with politics because it's what I do for a living. I mean, if you want to talk politics with me, uh, I've got a phone number. You can call in uh, five days a week for three hours and you can talk. I, I don't want to deal with it when I'm off the radio. There are plenty of other things in life that are more important. And politics became more and more consuming for this friend of mine who just increasingly, I feel like went down a dark road that they feel like I, I abandoned core convictions that I've somehow become some sort of left wing squish because I, I don't agree with them on, on certain things. And uh, because they knew me so well, they feel betrayed by me for not agreeing with them on things. You, you know, when, when scripture talks about a, a prophet's not welcome in his hometown, uh, those who know you best uh, tend to be least receptive to you. Uh, when you get to a, a certain positions in life and yeah, I can totally see that. And it just, it became acrimonious. And, and ultimately I found out that this person was, was saying some pretty awful things about me um, just because he was, he's hurt that I don't see eye to eye with him anymore. He feels betrayed by me. 
And I get that. There's nothing I can do with it. I'm not going to change my views to to go down this road with him. I'm I'm not going to associate with some of the the ideas he and, and I don't know that he I don't think he held them. I, I think like so many people in this political season that we are in, something just snapped. And I'm not willing to go down the road towards uh, the press overall as the enemy of the people. I, I think there are some terrible reporters out there, uh, but I don't think the press overall is. Um, and I'm not willing to believe some of the the outlandish stuff out there. I'm, and I'm I'm not willing to bite my tongue when, when somebody on my own side does something. I, I feel the need to speak up, but it just became a problem. And, and I feel very much like that's where we are with the press and the president. That the press and the president uh, were in this this collaborative relationship where he was a he was the darling of the media he had great ratings with the apprentice and he was on all the talk shows he was chiming in he even when he started flirting about being re- uh, republican instead of a democrat uh he, he'd he'd watch don lemon he'd go on don lemon show he'd go on morning joe he'd be on msnbc he'd be all over the place and it, i don't think it's a coincidence that the reporters who gave him the most attention are the ones who now hate him the most. Because to some degree, there's a, there's a level of guilt there. there there's a, they feel guilty that they made him possible. And he, of course, is, is perfectly willing to burn bridges. Uh, everything is very transactional. Uh, with the president. Uh, you know, I, I gave an interview last week to an evangelical group and they were asking me what my deal is with, with evangelicals, the president. So I don't have a deal with the evangelicals, the president. I think you can be an evangelical and support this president. I, I fundamentally do. I think you can be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. My problem is that so many of the evangelical leaders in this country who champion the president treat him almost is supremely transactional. It's what he gives the evangelical community. To the extent that I think a lot of the prominent evangelical voices around this president are have completely forgotten about his soul. They're perfectly willing for this guy to go to hell as long as they can get great policies from him. And I have a real problem with that. I've got a real problem with the evangelical leaders in this country who, who seal clap everything the president does or refuse to rebuke the president when he does something bad. They, they don't want to publicly call for his repentance, and they're certainly not sharing the gospel behind the scenes with him. I, I myself feel bad at the idea that evangelicals in this country may be getting a ton of good things from this president while also never caring about the fact that he may not actually be saved. You can be an evangelical and support this president. You totally can. You, you can be a Christian and support this president. Now, I know that there are a bunch of liberals out there. No, you can't. No, you know, actually, you can I mean, when the other side is promising you socialism and abortion on demand and shut down churches and, and nonprofits that won't go along with their cultural agenda, you absolutely can support this president. You can sit on the sidelines. You can support this president. Absolutely. But when you're an evangelical and you're way more interested, when you're a Christian, forget evangelicals, when you're a Christian and you're way more interested at what crumbs from the table you might be thrown than whether or not the people throwing you the crumbs are destined for heaven or hell, there's a problem there. And that's where a lot of them are. It's just disturbing. So you, you've got this entire dynamic now of, of the president and the press sniping with each other. And it leads to the New York Times cover yesterday where they had a thousand names on the New York Times cover of people who died. Now, to their credit, 
they did not just list the names. They went through obituaries of people. And in going through the obituaries of these people, they wanted to highlight the names of just random people you've never heard of. And in so doing that, they wanted to highlight the biographies of the people. So, for example, Dale Thurman, 65, Lexington, Kentucky, Taylor known for his exacting work and strong opinions. Solomon Podgurski from Morristown, New Jersey, loved to figure out how things worked. Richard Passman, 94, Silver Springs, Maryland, rocket engineer in the early days of supersonic flight. David Driscoll, 88, Hyattsville, Maryland, champion of African-American art. Tarlis McNicholas, 57, New York City, Belfast-born fighter for LGBT and disability rights. Frederick Brown Starr, 87, Greensboro, North Carolina, liked the mental challenges of business. Beverly Collins, 83, Portland, Maine, longtime registered nurse and hospital volunteer. Scott Melter, 60, Wyoming, Minnesota, worked as an engineer with Comcast. Florencio Almazo Moran, 65, New York City, a one-man army. Audrey Malone, 68, Chicago, sang gospel music as a member of the Malone Sisters. Harold Hayes, 96, Fort Wright, Kentucky, original member of the Navy's elite underwater demolitions team. The New York Times highlighted all of these people on their front page with little blurbs of who they were. A thousand people chosen around the country who had died of COVID-19, confirmed deaths from COVID-19, although it appears there were a couple of people who possibly were listed who might not have died of COVID-19. A thousand to highlight the hundred thousand. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I, I, I think it's worth doing. There is a fear expressed by some that the dying from this virus may become so regular that we become immune to it and we go back about our daily lives and just, oh, another victim, move on. And that would be a bit of a concern. But it's not just that they have done this. It's not just that the New York Times has highlighted these people and and taken the time to do this. I, I think that was a very worthwhile thing. The first black woman to graduate from Harvard University, the first member of the Navy's underwater demolitions team, um, on and on and on. One of the original employees of Home Depot died. Uh, a, a retail executive, a millionaire and a poor man all together. Here's the problem, though. It's the self-congratulatory tone from members of the media. A self-congratulatory tone. The It's not just that the New York Times is putting these people on the cover. So the New York Times did a breathless, this is how we did it, and this is why. And, hey, did you see that while this, this was out there, the president was playing golf? And reporters uh, taking this out and, and photoshopping the president's face behind the names and things like that. It's not just that the press is, is highlighting the people who are, are dying because of the virus. It is because the media is not just highlighting those names, but using those names in a way to highlight their partisan grievances against the president. It's not even that they want to highlight the president screwed up in some way. It's that they believe the president is bad and these deaths can be used against him. That's the problem. 
the self-congratulatory tone of the press. Hey, we read a lot of obituaries and found out the people who died of the virus and put a thousand of their names on the New York Times. See how we did it. See how we typeset it. See how we're using it against the president. Death should not be partisan. Death from a global pandemic should not be partisan. And yet there are a whole lot of people in the media who seem to want to make it that way. Uh, and, and the data truthing along the way as well. What we're seeing, the, the flare-ups around the nation, 18 states having increases in, in viral count. And here in Georgia, we're seeing an increase, but we know where it's coming from. We know what the data is. And the media now will say, well, we don't know that the data is true. The data could be wrong. They could be forging the data. So they were willing to believe the data when the data told them what they want to hear. But now the data is suggesting it's safe to go out and about. And they don't want to believe it anymore. They want to keep you home. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Democrats are starting to worry there could be an economic rebound. I really increasingly do not believe there is a coincidence between the stay-at-home trutherism of the data revisionists and the you got to stay home because the economy may rebound and that'll help Trump. No, do your part to stop the economy from rebounding lest Donald Trump get a second term. You just can't have honest and candid conversations about this stuff. So many people want to engage in the blame game. And, you know, the, the again, death should not be partisan. The New York Times should have done what it did and highlighted it. But the self-congratulatory tone of doing it and making it about partisanship and beating the president, that's just really sick. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, would like you here in Georgia to return your absentee ballots, please. All hands on deck, all hands on deck. That's right. Uh, Brad Raffensperger would very much like you to return your ballots. Uh, there are a million voters who requested absentee ballots and wound up not getting, uh, not returning their absentee ballots after having gotten them. Some people will show up at the polls. I, I'm, you know, I need to, I need to get my ballot, I guess. Um, but I may just show up at the polls on the ninth. I, 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 this is this is my important segue to to give you full disclosure because I've thought about this. And I got to reverse something that I said uh, two weeks ago on the show. I've changed my mind. I'm allowed to take new data and change my mind, or not? I, I looked. So I live in Bibb County uh, in Macon. And I'm looking at the ballots, uh, Republican and Democrat. And, and I'm thinking, wait a second. There's not a contested race on the Republican ballot. And there's only one race that matters, that's district attorney, and, and there's no Republican running for district attorney. So I'm going to have to get a Democratic ballot if, if I want to actually make a difference in the vote. So it, 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 there's there's a guy who's our district attorney in Macon. I actually opposed you the first time we ran. His name is David Cook. And uh, he's been a great district attorney. I, I campaigned against him. He was running, a friend of mine from law school was the DA, and he ran against him. He, he rallied uh, Democratic voters and black voters in particular to oust the DA and became the DA, and now it's very interesting. He's running, white guy running against a black woman, and there are members of the black community that are rallying towards his opponent merely because she's black. And, you know, the, I, you know it, when white people do this, there's, there's outrage, and there's not when uh, black or Hispanic voters do it, and, and I get that to a degree. But I also think that that if we're if we are to advance our society overall, 
none of us should be judging candidates by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character and their platform. And by and large, I mean, not, neither of these people are going to be weaker or tougher on crime than the other one. But the incumbent DA, he's really done nothing to deserve ouster. And I was just thinking, you know, I'm, I'll get my Republican va- ballot, but there really are no contested races on the Republican ballot. All the contested races, they're either like the, the mayoral race in, in Bibb County is nonpartisan. Uh, it, it's it's no Democrat, no Republican. Everybody votes for it. The judicial races, by the way, vote for the incumbents for the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. Uh, Charlie Bethel, for example, is uh, being uh, challenged by Beth Beskin, but Bethel's a good conservative. He, he's worth supporting. Uh, no, 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 no disrespect to Beskins, but she, she really doesn't need to be char- challenging him. He's a good guy, but it's just, it's, it's, it's weird to me to have to get a democratic ballot, but this is the way it is in a lot of the state. If you're South of I-20, if you're, you know, it's kind of funny. If you're North of I-20 in Georgia, Democrats sometimes have to request a Republican ballot because that part of the state is so Republican that if you really want to have a say in who your sheriff is or your DA is, you got to get a Republican ballot. And up in Forsyth County, for example, in Cherokee County, most of the Democrats are Republicans. They run as Republicans even though they're Democrats. Well, south of I-20, it's the exact opposite here in Bibb County. Uh, you got a bunch of people who are good people, but if they run with a Republican with an R next to their name, they're not going to get reelected. They're not going to get elected. And I look at the data in Bibb County and, okay, yes, Austin Scott is being challenged by two people in the Republican primary for Congress. Neither of them have a shot. It's not really a contest. And that's the only purported contest on the Republican ballot. If you want to, where I live in Bibb County, if you want to have a, make a difference, you got to go vote in the Democratic primary to vote for David Cook for the DA because he's a good DA. And some of the, the, the financial interests from what I hear that are lined up against him uh, trouble me greatly, and they're trying to get him ousted because he was too tough on crime. I, 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 given the statistics in Bibb County, I think you want a DA who's tough on crime. So I, I'm going to wind up having to vote in the Democratic primary. I don't really want to, but I'm going to. But at least you know. So in the Democratic primary, I could vote for Bernie Sanders just for the heck of it. I mean, I, I could vote. I, I think Andrew Yang is still on the ballot in Georgia. I think. I could vote for one of those suckers and, and try to help him. Make his, wouldn't it be hilarious if a bunch of Republicans in Georgia got the Democratic ballot and all voted for Bernie Sanders and gave him delegates? <laughs> that would actually be kind of funny. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I'm I'm probably going to have don't, – don't be disappointed in me. There literally are no contested races on the Republican side. And, you know, in, in, in Bibb, where I live, if you win your Democratic primary, you're going to win. So, for example, David Davies, uh, the sheriff, good sheriff. And he's running, and there's a Republican challenger. I don't know the Republican challenger. I've got got a number of friends of mine who are supporting him. I don't know anything about him. I've always liked the sheriff. I'll I'll vote for the sheriff. But he's going to win. I mean, the sheriff is going to win because he's uncontested on the Democratic primary. And if you win the Democratic primary in Bibb County, the odds are you're going to win overall. So I'm okay with that. It's just, it's one of those, I don't even know why sheriff and DA are partisan. Why are sheriff and district attorney partisan races? Why Why shouldn't they be non? What is partisan about law enforcement? I, I It boggles my mind as to why those are, are partisan races. Uh, just make the DA and the sheriff nonpartisan because they're supposed to serve Republicans and Democrats equally. Might as well do it, but they don't. So I got to vote Democrat if I want to say in Bibb County on who the DA is. So that's what I'll do, I guess. And Hey, I can maybe disrupt the Democratic Party a little bit, maybe. 
at 12.15, I'm sending out a jerk chicken recipe. It's actually really good. Uh, you can you can vary the heat in it. Use scotch bonnets. If, you know, if you put the seeds in uh, from a pepper like a scotch bonnet, it makes it even hotter. Uh, I actually made it this weekend. It was quite good. Uh, I left the seeds out, so it wasn't as spicy as I like, but it was spicy enough for everybody else. Um, it's an easy, easy recipe uh, to make, particularly if you have a blender or food processor. Uh, if you want to get it, uh, text the word recipe to the number 33777 at 12.15 today. You'll get it. In fact, I've got recipes now. I, I programmed in a recipe for today, tomorrow, and Thursday, uh, three days this week to make up for not having sent them for the last uh, number of weeks. Uh, well, I'll get back into the habit. But 12.15 today, the jerk chicken recipe comes out. Uh, you need to text recipe to 33777 to get it, to subscribe to it. Uh, I hope you'll consider it. Joe Cunningham at redstate.com sent me this. I had not seen it last week and it hasn't really gotten any attention anywhere. And it ties perfectly to the story I was going to get to. But let me start here with this. Uh, Again, this is from redstate.com, my old site, Joe Cunningham there. A recent CNBC poll shows that President Donald Trump and the Republican Party are essentially tied in key swing states with former Vice President Joe Biden and the Democrats when it comes to handling the coronavirus pandemic. The poll, which tested top battleground states like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, shows that Trump leads Biden 46-45 in terms of handling COVID-19, as well as leading the presumptive Democratic nominee, 45-43, when it comes to putting the middle class first. Considering the Democrats appear to be shaping up their narrative on the fact that 100,000 Americans died from this virus on Trump's watch, and that 36 million people are unemployed because of it, that isn't a good sign for the Democrats. The battleground polls shows that while Trump is certainly not the most popular guy around, voters in key swing states don't appear to have very much faith in the Democratic Party. What's worse for Biden is that right now Trump holds an edge over Biden with independence. That's really good news for the president. Remember, the pollsters have gotten better after the 2016 problems. Uh, They know that they've got to pay attention uh, polling-wise to the swing states, not the national positions. Which brings me to the story that I wanted to get to. Keep that in context here. There's also some polling out there from CNN that shows most voters actually think the president will do a better job handling an economic recovery than Joe Biden. So you got all that and this. Here's the headline, making all sorts of buzz today with Politico. The general election scenario that Democrats are dreading. We're about to see the best economic data we've seen in the history of this country, says the top former economic advisor to Obama. In early April, Jason Furman, a top economist in the Obama administration and now a professor at Harvard, was speaking via Zoom to a large bipartisan group of top officials from both parties. The economy had just been shut down, unemployment was spiking, and some policymakers were predicting an era worse than the Great Depression. The economic carnage seemed likely to doom President Donald Trump's chances of re-election. Furman, tapped to give the opening presentation, looked into a screen of poorly lit boxes of frightened wonks and made a startling declaration. We're about to see the best economic data we've seen in the history of this country, he said. The former cabinet secretaries and Federal Reserve chairs in the Zoom boxes were confused, though some of the Republicans may have been newly relieved and some of the Democrats suddenly concerned. Everybody looked puzzled and thought I had misspoken, Furman said in an interview. 
Instead of forecasting a prolonged depression-level economic catastrophe, Furman laid out a detailed case for why the months preceding the November election could offer Donald Trump the chance to brag truthfully about the most explosive monthly employment numbers and GDP growth ever. Since the Zoom call, Furman has been making the same case to anyone who will listen, especially the close-knit network of Democratic wonks who have traversed the Clinton and Biden administrations together, including top members of the Biden campaign. Furman's counterintuitive pitch that caused some Democrats, especially Obama alum around Washington, to panic. This is my big worry, said a former Obama White House official who is still close to the former president. Asked about the level of concern among top party officials, he said, it's high, 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 high. And top policy officials on the Biden campaign are preparing for a fall economic debate that might look very different than the one predicted at the start of the pandemic in March. They are very much aware of this, said one informal advisor. Furman's case begins with the premise that the 2020 pandemic triggered economic collapses categorically different than the Great Depression or the Great Recession, which both had slow grinding recoveries. Instead, he believes the way to think about the current economic drop off, at least in the first two phases, is more like what happens to a thriving economy during and after a natural disaster, a quick and steep decline in economic activity, followed by a quick and steep rebound. The COVID-19 recession started with a sudden shuttering of many businesses, a nationwide decline in consumption, and massive increase in unemployment. But starting around April 15th, when economic reopenings started to spread, but the overall numbers still look grim, Furman noticed some data that pointed to the kind of recovery economists often see after a hurricane or industry-wide catastrophe like a Gulf of Mexico oil spill. Consumption and hiring started to tick up in gross terms, not in net terms, Furman said, describing the phenomenon as a partial rebound. The bounce back can be very, very fast because people go back to their original job. They get called back from furlough. You put the lights back on in your business. Given how many people were furloughed and how many businesses were closed, you get a big jump out of that. It looks like a V. By the way, Larry Kudlow and the president's economic team are making the same sort of case. Now you see why the Democrats want to extend unemployment payments until next year. Now you see why the Democrats don't want you out of your house. Now you see why some members of the media are shaming people for going outside and going back to work. Now you see why they're amplifying and playing up the nightmare scenarios. Like, for example, did you hear about the hairdressers in Missouri who exposed hundreds of people to the virus? Well, maybe, possibly, could have. We're not really sure. But play it up and scare the bejesus out of people. Keep them in their houses. I have to say, in fact, I, I I don't have to say it. I've gotten emails fr- from liberals saying the same thing, that Erickson, you've been a rather surprisingly reasonable voice in all this pandemic stuff. Well, they'll be mad at me for saying this. I really do think that more and more Democrats are going to talk down the economy and scare you to stay home so that the economy doesn't rebound because they are scared, scared, scared of this scenario. This is a this is this is one of the the problems that Democrats have. Uh, Let me read you more of this Politico piece. The scenario would be a long term problem for any president. But before the reality sets in, Trump could be poised to benefit from the dramatic numbers producing produced during the partial rebound phase that's likely to coincide with the four months before November. That realization has many Democrats spooked. 
In absolute terms, the economy will look historically terrible come November, said Kenneth Baer, a Democratic strategist who worked as a senior role at OMB under Obama. But relative to the depths of April, it will be on an upswing. 12% unemployment, for example, is better than 20, but historically terrible. On Election Day, we Democrats need voters to ask themselves, are you better off than you were four years ago? Republicans need voters to ask themselves, are you better off than you were four months ago? One progressive Democratic operative pointed out that recent polling taken during the nadir of the crisis showed Biden is struggling to best Trump on who is more trusted to handle the economy. Remember, we talked about that poll. Trump beats Biden on the economy even right now, he said. This is going to be extremely difficult no matter what. It's existential that we figure it out. In any of these economic scenarios, Democrats are going to have to win the argument that our public health and economy are much worse off because of Donald Trump's failure of leadership. The former Obama White House official said, even today when we are at over 20 million unemployed, Trump earns high marks on the economy. So I can't imagine what it looks like when things go in the other direction. I don't think this is a challenge for the Biden campaign. This is the challenge for the Biden campaign. If they can't figure this out, they should all just go home. Even the Biden campaign seems to recognize the challenge. The way that Biden talks about the economy is not just tied to the COVID crisis. It's also about the things that Donald Trump has done to undermine working people since the day he took office, said Kate Bedenfield, Biden's deputy campaign manager. But secondly, it's also highly likely that under any economic circumstances in the fall, Trump is likely going to be the first modern president to preside over net job losses. That's not a good message, though. Because the president's message can be China, 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 China. It was the Wuhan virus that the media was perfectly happy to call a Wuhan virus until Donald Trump called it that. And then it became racist. When Joe Biden is already behind, we're in a global pandemic with unemployment at depression levels, job losses at depression levels, economic collapse at depression levels, and Joe Biden still loses to the president on the economy. Listen, here's the thing. This is, it goes back to Joe Cunningham's piece at Red State and, and the CNBC poll. Independent voters, swing voters in swing states view the president slightly more favorable on who can handle the economy and who can get us through a tough time. Here's the reality. Those moderate independent voters who hate Donald Trump and like Joe Biden a lot, ultimately, they'll vote on who's going to do the best for their 401k. You see, there are a lot of suburban voters who claim to be pro-life and 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 conservative traditionally, but they don't really care. They just want to be left alone. Those voters, they, they don't really have values and principles so much as they have 401ks. And they don't care. I mean, you could campaign on killing every child in America. And as long as you promise to start stockpiling their 401k, a lot of them would vote for you. The swing state, squishy, moderate, principleless independents are going to vote for who's going to make them rich, not who's going to make them uh, comforted in the morality. And if they think it's Donald Trump, they will hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump. They don't like him. They'll spend four years grumbling about him. They'll tell everyone they voted for Joe Biden, but in the ballot box or in their home with their absentee ballot, they're going to vote for the guy who's going to help their 401k. And if the economy is on the upswing, jobs are coming back, growth is coming back, 
People feel it. People not only feel it about themselves, but their next door neighbor, their neighbor and their family and their kid who graduated from college and doesn't have a job. They're starting to benefit. They're going to vote for Donald Trump and the Democrats know it. So how does that change things for the Democrats? Well, they can't blame the president for economic collapse because everyone knows it was the virus. They were the ones telling people to stay home. So you're going to tell you're going to blame Donald Trump for keeping everyone home when you got mad at him for saying the states need to be liberated and people need to go outside. You're trying to have it both ways. People aren't going to like that. The president, it is doom and gloom for the president right now, and yet there are silver linings everywhere. If we can get through this, we're going to get through it. If we can see this through, we will see it through. Now, that sounds like Yogi Berra speak, but no, no, no. If you can be patient and understand we're going to get through this, you'll start to believe it yourself. And when you start to believe it yourself, you'll start to realize that, you know what? Things are not as bad as I expected them to be. Were there problems? Absolutely. Were there screw-ups? Absolutely. Do you believe that Joe Biden would have screwed it up and Hillary Clinton would have screwed it up? Yes. What the Democrats have to do is they got to run a campaign that convinces you that they would have been flawless. They would have been masterful. But when Joe Biden was blasting the president for xenophobia over uh, restricting air travel to China, that kind of proves he would have made bad mistakes. When Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio, despite all of the media uh, favorable, uh, particularly on Cuomo, the the media hagiography of, of Cuomo, despite all of that, the reality is that Cuomo didn't do a good job and a whole bunch of people in nursing homes died. A lot of people had grandma killed, not because of Donald Trump, but because of Andrew Cuomo. And people will figure that out. And the economy will rebound with Donald Trump as president. And they will reward him in the same way they're blaming him right now. They'll reward him. People are fickle like that. The American public, by and large, votes with their checking account, with their bank account, with their retirement plan. They don't vote on principles and morals. Those of you who do, like myself, we're in the minority. I won't vote for a pro-abortion candidate. I will not do it. There are a lot of people who will say that, but they actually will if it helps their 401k. And so the other aspect of this is when you already have swing voters in swing states giving the president high marks on the stuff, it should be panic time for Democrats. I'm amazed at the number of smart people who tell me all the time, well, of course he's going to win. The president always gets the second term. Do they not remember Jimmy Carter? George H.W. Bush, presidents do not always get second terms, but it's so rare for one to be thrown out of office that the Democrats do need to bank that in. But here's what's going to happen. We're going to have more hysteria from the media and more hysteria from the Democrats. We're going to have more blame. of. Uh, we're going to have more blood on the president's hands, more blood on Brian Kemp's hands, more blood on Deron DeSantis' hands. Every death will be blamed on them. Every bad thing will be blamed on them now. The problem is that That conversation from the Democrats, I think latently people understand, isn't really honest when this virus came from China. And it's the virus in China that caused the pandemic, not Donald Trump. And by the way, look around the world. Every country has largely behaved the same with the same sorts of outcomes. You can't say we are unique in this. And people realize it. At the top of the next hour, the Vice President of the United States will be joining me, Mike Pence. Uh, He'll be with me. I'll be taking your phone calls as well, except not with him. We pre-recorded the interview. uh, You know, I I might as well give you the details because this was kind of this was kind of interesting. So, you know, I've known the Vice President for for about a decade or longer than that now. 
Uh, I've known the vice president, for, uh, gosh, almost 20 years. Uh, nice guy. We, we've been friends. We've known each other for, for a long time, been friends for a while. Uh, he came to my resurgent gathering last year in Atlanta. I'm, man, am I glad we decided not to do it this year. We'll be back to it next year, we hope. Um, but nonetheless, so when was it? So he came on Friday. I guess it was Wednesday. His office texted Charlie uh, and said, hey, would Eric like to interview the vice president in Atlanta? Well, I was assuming like phone call or something, but no, they, they wanted me to come up to Atlanta. I was going to go to lunch with the vice president and the governor and uh, then interview him at the restaurant before they went over to Waffle House. Well, then the, the, the schedule changed and it was going to be meet him at Waffle House. So meet him at Waffle House on Friday. But then the, they kept changing the time. And, and, you know, I do my evening show in Atlanta. And I wanted to get the the interview out there as well. And they sent us, I woke up Friday morning with a confirmation for the interview at six. Well, that's when my show is done. And I was going to take off Friday. Friday was going to be a vacation day. And I was like, great. Well, so then Charlie reached out. They said, no, no, it's going to be right after his event at Waffle House. So Philip and I drove up there uh, and we, it was kind of weird. We had to take our equipment to a back room, to the holding room where the vice president was going to be and set everything up, do mic checks, level checks, all that sort of stuff. And then we had to leave the room because they were going to, one, run UV light over everything to sanitize it and then wipe everything down. So sure enough, I I realized that my laptop had been wiped down with something wet. I could see like the the streaks uh, on the screen and, and the keyboard. And then the mixer as well had been wiped down. Everything sterilized in the holding room. We weren't allowed back in. We couldn't touch anything until we had the interview with the vice president and and we went in there and I, I had no idea how much time we we're getting the press people were like you got seven minutes like what seven minutes and the vice president of course we're friends and he's like give him as much time as he wants do you, do you know who this guy is <laughs> so we did about a 15 minute interview uh which i will play for you at the top of the hour now, uh, we talked about college football and schools reopening and all that. He's, he's such a good guy. Uh, before I get there, though, I want to go to Jack calling from Conyers. Jack, welcome to the program. How are you? Pretty good. How are you today? Good. What's going on? I have a question about the uh, primary election coming up on the 9th. Yes. Since this is a primary election for either Democrats or Republicans or independents, why are there non partisan elections <laughs> on the ballot oh because gosh when was it um if four or six years ago i i want to say it was four years ago they changed the law in georgia it used to be that nonpartisan elections were on the general election ballot and they decided uh, with runoffs likely in some of these races that they would put the nonpartisan races on the uh, political party ballots in the primary, and then they would settle any runoffs in the runoff period for the primary. I don't know that they should have done that because it confuses a lot of people. Why are all these nonpartisan races there? But uh, because of the way the law works, they had to put nonpartisan municipal races on these ballots. And so if they're going to put nonpartisan municipal races on the on the primary ballots, they figure they might as well save money with the elections and do the nonpartisan uh, campaigns as well. You got to remember that it, the parties help cover the costs of the primary elections, but the state's got to eat the cost for the nonpartisan elections. And so 
If you have runoffs, they cost money to the state. So this was actually, it was a little bit of a cost savings to the state to put them all on the partisan ballots when the parties themselves are helping subsidize the ballot. That is the answer. When we come back, Vice President Mike Pence. As parents, we want to encourage our children to pursue their dreams and provide opportunities that give them the best chance to succeed. Sometimes that means optimizing their routine, making it more flexible, more dynamic, so they have more time to focus on the things they love. And that's why there's Laurel Springs. As so many of you have learned during quarantine and homeschooling is sometimes traditional schools, they're not set up for that. Sometimes you realize your kids are thriving more in a homeschool setting. Laurel Springs is an accredited online private school for students in kindergarten through 12th grade that recognizes every child has unique individual and talents and strengths and learning style, and they've got a flexible program for it. They're accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Advanced Ed. It means their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities. If you're interested in exploring this opportunity for your kids, not to go back to a traditional brick and mortar school, but to be more constructive than a homeschool environment that you've had during quarantine, consider going to laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Register your child today. Receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash Eric for your waived registration fee. laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia and now beyond. The phone number is... 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. So uh, I've got a, a special treat for you. I sat down on Friday in Atlanta with the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. He's a friend of mine. Uh, his office called on Wednesday and said, hey, don't tell every, anybody, but we're headed to actually, I, I guess it was before the news broke, so it would have been the beginning of the week. Um, they said, don't tell anybody, but he's headed to Atlanta uh, on Friday. Would Eric like to sit down with him? Uh, talk to Charlie. Absolutely. Of course, a in-person exclusive interview with the vice president. You're absolutely right. We want to do that. And so we did. I uh, went up to Atlanta uh, with Philip, who runs the web stuff for the resurgent uh, for me and sat down with the vice president. He did a business roundtable discussion with the Waffle House CEO, the governor, uh, the secretary of labor and several restaurateurs about reopening restaurants in Georgia. Kelly Leffler was there. Doug Collins was there. The whole gang was there. And I got to do an exclusive interview with him. And I want to bring that to you now. Keep in mind, uh, we aired it on my evening show in Atlanta on Friday. Man, we had like 15 minutes from wrapping up the interview to getting it to the station to do. Uh, and then I wanted to be able to play it for you guys today as well. So here now, my conversation with Vice President Mike Pence. I'm actually at <laughs> Waffle House headquarters with a special guest this evening, the Vice President of the United States. How are you? I'm great, Eric Erickson. It is great to see you. I'm a fan. I appreciate it very much. The first question I can ask you is always the most important. How do you like your hash brown since we're here at Waffle House? <laughs> I, like them, I like them cooked all the way through. I like them crunchy. Nice. And, uh, nice. I, I have had more than my share of hash browns and waffles. And, you know, Waffle House is very big in Indiana. And um, But I got to tell you, the CEO of uh, Waffle House was at the White House a few weeks ago. And... Um, he spoke about the challenges uh, all of us have faced through this coronavirus pandemic, but a lot of people don't know one out of four of the jobs lost in this country are people working at restaurants around America. That's why I, I wanted to be here today uh, to really, uh, to really uh, congratulate the people of Georgia and your great governor, Brian Kemp, on, uh, on reopening Georgia. Uh, in fact, we, we stopped out for lunch today before we came out to Waffle House and uh, to just see the enthusiasm here. People are proving 
um, that you can, we can safely reopen, we can get America working again, and, and uh, Georgia's leading the way. It is leading the way, and there are a lot of people out there who are worried about a spike in cases. Uh, and what do you want Georgians and Americans to know with this underlying concern? A lot of polling suggests Americans still have that maybe we're going to see a rebound if we start going outside. Well, I, I, what I would say is that um, because of what the American people have done over the last several months, 15 days to slow the spread would become 45 days. Um, Families made the sacrifices to avoid gatherings of more than 10. Uh, churches, synagogues, other places of worship uh, were willing to close and do, do remote uh, worship services. Uh, restaurants closed to dine-in service, and uh, our healthcare workers stepped up um, as heroes all throughout all of it. And what I would say to the people of Georgia is that because of what we have all done, we're, we're getting there and that the safe and responsible reopening that began here weeks ago in Georgia and places like Florida. And now, Eric, all 50 states have begun the process of reopening our country. But it's all been possible because the American people practice the, the common sense and good hygiene and the guidance. And so long as we continue to do that, uh, President Trump and I believe we can, we can continue to see the kind of progress we're making. We can get this country working again. And, uh, and we can put uh, the health of the American people and a growing economy first at the same time. What do you think the prospects are for an economic rebound to begin uh, in the next quarter as people start going back out? Well, we're, the, the second quarter that we're in that ends at the end of June is obviously going to reflect the difficulty of this time. It's one of the reasons the President and I rolled our sleeves up, worked with members of Congress in both political parties. and and passed uh, multiple pieces of legislation to directly help American families, to help small businesses keep people on the payroll, uh, and to make sure that states had the resources for unemployment uh, benefits and, and a whole range of supports. Uh, but we really do believe that as we see the American economy reopening, as we see states like Georgia beginning to put people back to work far beyond the essential businesses that have that have never stopped working uh, throughout this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we think the third quarter is going to be a transition, but uh, President Trump really believes it's going to be a transition to greatness, uh, that uh, I think this economy is going to be growing in the second half of the year, and that, uh, frankly, next year could be one of the, one of the biggest years for economic growth in American history. Because the President and I really do believe, and I saw it today when I was out to eat, I heard it today at our roundtable, uh, the enthusiasm people have for being able to be back out, to be and not only enjoying restaurants, but to be going back to work and the way people are embracing uh, the social distancing and uh, the hygiene that's necessary during this time. Uh, but the demand is there. I think the, the American people are ready to roll back. I talked to one retailer uh, over at the restaurant we had lunch at. She said she'd open up just every bit, every bit as soon as uh, the governor started to open up. Georgia and uh, customers are all coming back. We're hearing that all over the country. The American people are ready to get back to it. They know we can get back to it safely and responsibly. And 
And as I said, Georgia and Governor Brian Kemp have been leading the way to do that. Let me jump back to at the roundtable discussion here at the Waffle House headquarters. You mentioned the president putting together this task force before we had the first community spread in the U.S. Right. What goes into the task force you led as far as hearing from the experts, balancing the economic concerns versus the health concerns? What do you do as, as vice president leading a task force like that? Well, I, I, I think it's important to note that that before there was one case of community spread in America, that would be in early February, mm-hmm. the president suspended all travel from China and stood up this White House Coronavirus Task Force. About a month later, he uh, tapped me as his vice president to lead the task force to make sure that we were marshalling the full resources of the federal government and bringing all of that to bear. Um, and the way we've approached it, uh, and when I, when I took this role, we actually added some economic voices. We added uh, the Secretary of Commerce and economic advisors to the team because we knew that this is not a choice between health and economic growth. It was, it's really a, a choice between the health of the American people and the health of the American people that's manifested and supported by a growing economy. And there, there are real health costs uh, to what we have been through. It's one of the reasons uh, that I said earlier today that uh, now that we're opening up hospitals to elective surgery, we've seen hospitalizations drop dramatically here in in Georgia and, frankly, uh, in places all around the country, we're encouraging people to go back in and have that elective surgery done. Just as importantly, go in and have that regular checkup done. I mean, there, we really want to see people come back in and, and, and utilize the vast healthcare resources that we have in this country. We can do it confidently, we can do it safely, uh, and we'll contribute greatly to the health of the American people. But the way we've approached the task force all along the way, Eric has been, uh, every task force meeting has started with looking at the data. We literally have examined county by county across the country as this coronavirus epidemic made its way first on the West Coast and then in the Northeast, then New Orleans, Detroit. We're still experiencing challenges in areas like Chicago and Minnesota. But as Dr. Burks unpacked today, um, while we grieve the loss uh, of more than 95,000 Americans and our our prayers are with the families of those who've been lost here in Georgia. Um, the, the, because of what the American people have done, we've saved lives and we've prevented more families from facing hardship. Um, and, uh, uh, and as we reopen, I'm confident that we can do that, just like you are here in Georgia, even while sustaining a decline of hospitalization, a decline of new cases, a decline uh, of, uh, most importantly, of, of fatalities and losses. Georgia's demonstrating that you can do it. You're doing it. Uh, we're putting we're putting this state back to work. We're putting America back to work. We're doing it safely and responsibly. One of the things the president did right before the roundtable started was declared that people should be able to go back to church, declaring them essential right. services. Love to get your thoughts on him doing that. Well, uh, look, um, the president and I understand that the faith of the American people is a wellspring of the strength of this nation and our our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, all of our places of worship have made great sacrifices. They put the health of their congregants first. Um, but uh, President and I are, are absolutely determined uh, to work with states, the new guidelines that are issued today to make it possible for people to begin to gather again. You know, the, the Bible tells us, don't absent yourself from the assembly as some are in the habit of doing. And, but we, 
we've had to absent ourselves from the assembly of believers um, out of concern for others, especially the most vulnerable. But the president and I believe because of the trend lines that we are seeing, uh, cases, despite the fact that we're testing more than ever before, 13.5 million tests done so far, 400,000 tests in a single day this last weekend around the country, cases are still going down uh, almost everywhere in the country, Eric. Uh, hospitalizations are going down. Positivity rates are going down. You know, as we're, we're increasing testing. Uh, as of the report I got this morning, more than 40 states uh, have less than 10% of those tested showing a positive result, as in they have the coronavirus. And there's 22 states that are less than 5% people testing. So we're, we're making great progress, and we believe with the guidance that we issued today uh, that the American people uh, can and should uh, be allowed to come together uh, in worship and in prayer, and uh, we know that's going to be profoundly important um, to bringing our country all the way back. Well, that leads to the really important question. Are parents going to be able to throw their kids back in school in August? Are we going to be able to have college football? Which is more important, actually, than sending our kids back to school, just to be clear here. I think for most of the country, the answer is yes to both. I think it is. I mean, when we issued the guidelines for opening up America again, one of the things we made clear to governors was this can be implemented on a statewide basis or a county-by-county basis. And uh, what, what we are seeing already, and, and uh, our task force met with uh, uh, the better part of uh, 20 presidents of colleges and universities around the country that are already taking the guidance from CDC, based here in Atlanta, putting it uh, into practice in plans and, and, and very creatively making plans to bring students back to the campus. And when the students come back to the campus, sports is going to come back college football will be back. Now, we expect there's going to be some changes in, uh, in the way that we can attend and temperature checks on the way in and all of those kinds of things. But I can't, I can't tell you how impressed I am uh, in talking with university presidents about the thoughtful and careful approach they're taking to bringing our colleges and universities back. And we fully expect, working with governors, but we fully expect as we continue to put the coronavirus behind us, Eric, uh, that we're going to get kids back to school this fall. And, um, and that's going to be true just about everywhere in America. There may be communities where ultimately the state and local leadership decides that they, they need to do something differently. But the trends that we see today, I believe, uh, not only be back to school, but we issued guidance a week ago to get, get kids back to summer camp. And uh, you see summer camps opening in places all across the country pretty sure if my wife has to be a homeschool teacher for another couple of months she's not going to make it <laughs> you know it's can i just say something about teachers and yes. parents during this time i mean it's really been remarkable i mean our kids are all out of the house but my wife's a school teacher mm -hmm. uh, she teaches art at a christian school not far from washington dc and uh, it's uh, every morning on the zoom with other faculty and it's uh, it's sending art supplies she went over to the school with our one daughter and loaded up crates and crates for hundreds of kids to be able to do their artwork. I mean, uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't think we, um, uh, I don't think we can say enough about teachers who've continued the education process here in Georgia and all over the country uh, on, a, on a distance basis. We've tried to work to ease up some of the federal restrictions that allow distance learning to take place in, um, in primary and secondary education 
but the way parents have also stepped forward. Um, a lot of times while either working from home or dealing with challenges of being out of work and, and supporting their kids as they continue to learn. You know firsthand right. uh, as a great dad, your wife is a great mom, but um, my hat's off to all of the parents who've had kids home and all the teachers that have just done a great job during a challenging time. Last question for you, leaving the round table, what do you want the American people, what do you want Georgians to know moving forward? What the, should they be doing and what can they take assurance in? I think the people of Georgia should know that we're getting there. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I, the White House Coronavirus Task Force, I see the data every day. I talk to our top epidemiologists and as Dr. Burks reported today in the briefing room at the White House, we, I see the trend lines because of the sacrifices the American people made. We are every day, one day closer to putting the coronavirus in the past and to being prepared for whatever may happen in the future. We, we're remdesivir is a new therapeutic that was spun up in record time. You're hearing about the breakthroughs in early testing on vaccines that the president's directed through Operation Warp Speed to be ready. And I just, I just, uh, I hope people of Georgia um, have the same sense of hope and optimism that the president and I have. Because of the sacrifices that everyone made, the social distancing, uh, heating state and local and federal guidance, um, uh, we slowed the spread. We did flatten the curve. Our healthcare system was never overwhelmed anywhere in America. No American who required a ventilator was ever denied a ventilator. We got the supplies to our healthcare workers and now we're testing across the board at a, at a scale never imagined uh, in, in any prior time, in the time that we've been able to do it. So I hope the American people can see that because of what they've done, that we can reopen and that Georgia's, Georgia's leading the way and demonstrating that we can we reopen safely and responsibly, and as long as we all continue uh, to put the health of one another first, um, that we can uh, we can open up again. We can get our country working again. And um, uh, I truly do believe um, that sooner than people ever imagined, uh, we're going to bring this country back bigger and better than ever before. Vice President Mike Pence, good to see you in person. Eric, always good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much to the Vice President of the United States for taking time out of his busy schedule to spend some time with me. He was a, He's such a good guy. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Man, so just let me let me tell you some of the, the security stuff that you go through there. So and one of the things we learned in doing the Red State Gathering last year when we had the Vice President come is that his, his team is constantly uh, in flux and changing things, and, and the schedules go down to the minute. Minute by minute, this is supposed to happen. He tries to be on time with everything. On Friday, he was delayed a little bit with his roundtable discussion because the president came out and uh, did his religious liberty order saying churches were essential, uh, which I think to some degree may have played a role in the Chicago mayor deciding to essentially raid churches on Sunday. Um, that only plays to the president's hand, though, and and she doesn't seem to get that. We'll we'll get to that when we come back. But so he was delayed there, but it was just minute by minute. And so they start talking to us at the beginning of the week. Do you want to do this? Can you do this? Fill out this form. And then by Thursday, it's just a a 
roll, a constant rolling downhill of, of information and data and where you're going to be. And, and then suddenly you're going to interview him at, at uh, 12. Nope. Now it's going to be at 11. Nope. Now it's going to be at three. Nope. Now it's going to be at six. Okay. Now it's going to be at 155. Now it's going to be at 245 as they're constantly juggling everything else on the schedule. And I know more about the schedule than uh, the public is told and where I'm supposed to be. And then all that stuff gets changed. And then you show up and there's the secret service vetting process. You got to get there early. They got mad at us. Uh, the vice president's team told us 1230. The, the secret service had us at 11. The schedule had changed and they didn't realize it. We show up at about 1135. We have to go to a holding area inside the waffle house. And so in the, when you go to the waffle house headquarters, you got a front parking lot, a side parking lot, and then a back parking lot. And so we're, they park everybody in the front parking lot and then they do a sweep with dogs and the dogs sniff out the vehicles. And then after the vehicles are sniffed with us, we had radio equipment. The Secret Service came by and they individually inspected everything, went through all the pockets in my computer bag, opened all the equipment. I had the dogs by and and so then you load it up and then you go inside and you go inside and they temperature checked you and they offered you a face mask if you wanted one. Uh, But they, they pull this temperature gun right to your head and take your temperature. And then they check you there and then they recheck all your stuff. And then they got us to a back room. And, and the whole way there, the Secret Service agents from the Atlanta Bureau recognized me. They want to know where Charlie is. They're, they're not even interested in me. The Waffle House guys are like, it's Eric Erickson. And, and the people, are like, it's Eric Erickson. The Secret Service guys are like, where's Charlie? <laughs> so when we had the Red State gathering last year, Charlie was the point person for him. And the Secret Service agents, several of them who were there, remembered him. They're like, where, where is he? They didn't know Philip. That they, they could care less about me, couldn't care less about me. They wanted Charlie. Uh, great boost to my ego, but it was a it was a fun time uh, once we got in there and got settled. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. As I mentioned to you earlier, uh, the Chicago mayor mounted a police raid on a church's Sunday service. This is from Discern, D-I-S-R-N.com. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Sunday launched a police raid on a predominantly black church for holding services in defiance of her coronavirus shutdown orders. Lightfoot allegedly dispatched three marked squad cars and two unmarked police vehicles full of officers to Chicago Cornerstone Baptist Church on the South Side's Woodlawn neighborhood. Cornerstone pastor Courtney Lewis was in the middle of a sermon when he heard loud banging on the church's front door. After discovering it was the police, he instructed the men of the church to lock the door and deny entry. Lewis said he felt if he was confronted, the Soviet-style KGB, as they continued banging on the door and demanding the church be shut down. Thankfully, our doors were locked as a normal safety precaution. We take each service to protect our members from escalating gun violence. Lewis uh, reached out to the U.S. Attorney John Losh for assistance. We're trying to follow the laws of man as much as reasonably possible. But when the laws of man conflict with the laws of God, I as the pastor have a duty to follow the laws of God. We will not be intimidated by this overhanded government bully, but we are requesting the assistance of our president and our Justice Department in correcting this grave miscarriage of justice. Lightfoot recently fined three churches $500 for holding in-person services and dispatched patrol vehicles to block the entry of a church parking lot. Listen, there have got to be reasonable ways to do this. Let me make let me make real clear for you. If your church is filled to the brim with people and someone has the virus and is in that church, 
Remember that you are most contagious with this virus when you have the least symptoms, and there are a lot of asymptomatic people. So you're in there with a bunch of people. You got a an infected person. The virus is going to spread. We know this from Albany, Georgia. Look at what happened with that funeral with the pastor who was infected. Albany, Georgia was the third worst hit place in the Western Hemisphere or in the Western world, uh, including Italy and New York, because of a pastor per capita. Albany was just devastated with this virus. So if you're packing into your church on Sunday and someone's in there with a the virus, they could spread it and kill numbers of people who, and, and the people go out of the church, they get infected and they spread it in the community. And you have massive community infection. You can't play around with this in your church. The church is not a building. It is the body of Christ. You do not need a building to be a church. But there are ways for churches to do this and be responsible citizens. Listen, uh, the city of God and the city of man, you've got responsibilities to the city of God. You've got responsibilities to the city of man. There are ways to balance this out. Either don't sing or wear masks or limit the number of people who can come in. You know, some churches, what they're doing, I find this to be very innovative. They're setting up a reservation system and they're doing multiple abridged services. In fact, I know of one church uh, that is, it's a Baptist church up in North Georgia, and it is doing seven services. And they are limiting the capacity of each of the seven services to about 100 people. So they can do 700 total people. And they are spreading them out through the congregation. There is not going to be a choir, uh, but they will be spread out to, in such a way that the family should be able to, I, I guess I should say uh, 100 families, not 100 people. Um, and they'll, they'll spread out through the church. They'll have lots of room between each other, more than six feet even. So they'll be able to sing. They'll be able to enjoy each other's company. There won't be an offering plate. There'll be an offering box. They won't do communion unless it's a self-serve style communion. They haven't figured that out, but they're making it work. Uh, and the services, instead of being an hour long service, they're going to be a 30 minute service and they will be able to accommodate this. Uh, they're adjusting the preacher's weekend schedule so that he has a little more of a break. They'll have some assistant pastors handy to be able to do it, and they're figuring out ways to do it, ways to accommodate the demands of, of coping with this virus in the world and also having people in church to worship on Sunday. I don't understand the, the desire of some of these churches to have confrontations over the virus. And I don't mean that ugly. I, I really don't. You not being able to meet as you would normally because of a virus does not mean you're being persecuted. At least you can still it to some degree meet. Now, if they're not letting you meet at all, that's a problem. Uh, if they're not willing to accommodate your changed behavior, that's a problem. And that does need to be fought. Uh, it, rounding up people in churches for daring to meet, I think is disgusting. Blocking church parking lots is disgusting. And there are some local officials overplaying their hand. But let's be honest here. This is not a binary either-or situation. There are some people out there, take the pastor in Louisiana, who wants to pack the crowd in and, and, and raise money in a time of global pandemic. I think that's wrong. He's putting his congregation at risk, and his congregation is at risk to spread the virus in the community. But if, if tobacco shops, if marijuana shops, if liquor stores are essential, then churches have to be essential. It is amazing to me. It is an insight into the, 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 the party that booed God for his addition to their Democratic Party platform. The party that booed God has decided that liquor stores and pot shops are essential and Jesus is not. 
Jesus is way more central than anything else if you're a Christian. And the fact that some of these places don't want to accommodate people of faith and allow them to find a way forward is crazy. And this idea that you got to stay home the whole time, how much of this is punishing Christian evangelicals for supporting the president? I'm beginning to wonder if that has something to do with it. Just like some of these Democrats are adamant, you're never allowed to leave your house until you have a virus, until you have a, an anti-vaxxer, until you have an antibiotic or a vaccine, a vaccine to stop the virus, you can't go to your church. Part of me has to wonder if there is some contempt for Christians in all of this. In the same way, there is a fear that an economic rebound could help the president. Now, I do think that there are public officials who do mean well. I do think there are public officials who are scared. I do think there are public officials who are deeply concerned about people in close quarters in a congregation singing, shaking each other's hands, laying hands on each other, what have you, or what they think might go on in a church. They've never been in one. They think they know what's going on. They see the worst on TV and assume that's all of them. And they're worried about the virus being spread, but they're not educated enough on what the church actually does. But there are ways forward. There's another story I I see in, in discern. The California Department of Public Health and Governor Gavin Newsom announced new guidelines on Monday allowing in-person church services with limited capacity. Churches must limit congregations to 25% of the building's capacity or a maximum of 100 parishioners, whichever is lower. After 21 days under these restrictions, the state health department will work with county health officials to assess the impact in-person worship services have had on the community as it relates to the spread of COVID-19. The state health department also provided additional suggestions as churches begin to reopen. Consider holding in-person meetings and services outside. Continue to provide services online. Post signage in locations to remind churchgoers to wear face masks and practice social distancing. Discourage shared items like Bibles and hymnals. Discourage offering self-service food and beverages. Newsom's new guidelines come three days after President Trump announced he was deeming places of worship essential. When asked about Trump's comments, Newsom said he had been in communication with several California faith leaders to decide the best approach to reopen churches while maintaining public health. So you've got the progressive governor of California more willing to open churches than you've got the Chicago mayor who's rounding people up. Now, a federal court has upheld a previous order from Gavin Newsom banning churches from holding in-person services. It was a two-to-one split. The the Ninth Circuit denied the request for a temporary restraining order by the South Bay United Pentecostal Church in Chula Vista, saying the governor's ban did not infringe on the First Amendment, free exercise of religion. They sided with Newsom's actions, saying that uh, this was an emergency and does not infringe upon or restrict practices because of their religious motivation. And that's kind of the key for the Supreme Court logic here. If something applies to everyone, it can apply to religious people as well. It's terrible Supreme Court precedent, by the way. The Supreme Court essentially says you can discriminate against Christians as long as you're discriminating against other people too. But Newsom, this point is now largely rendered moot because he's working to reopen churches. You know, I'm not a big fan of his, really not, but um, he's actually done a pretty good job. It's amazing, though, that the media is going to give Newsom more praise and, and credit than they will someone like Brian Kemp. 
CNN did credit, by the way, ran a, a good story on reopening Georgia and how it actually hasn't seen a major spike in cases. Now, we're going to see some uptick in cases in Georgia. We know why, though. It's not anomalous. 18 states are seeing a, a, a slight rise. But by and large, Georgia's holding steady. And it, it's to his credit. It's to CNN's credit that they're willing to point out Georgia hasn't seen this major surge in cases due to reopening. But we do have issues that have to be dealt with. And the media, by and large, doesn't want to give credit to conservative Republican governors like Kemp and DeSantis and others, or even Greg Abbott in Texas. You know, CBS News has a, one of its its news presidents has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today saying basically it, it's time to give up on trying to have a fair and balanced newscast. Let's just let everybody admit that they're liberals and, and get on with it. And so people can assess for themselves the bias. As long as they're accurate in what they're reporting, uh, it, people will know that they're shaping the news towards their liberal biases. Now, here's the problem. Uh, we're, people are playing up that this is a CBS News president. He was CBS News president for like a year and a half. And he came back in 1986 uh, for a short time and was gone again. He wasn't some major news president setting the tone of CBS News. But it's nice to see someone who's been in the media say, hey, yeah, you know, uh, there is a liberal bias. Uh, now that it's not just a bias, that there is a progressive taint to the news. And it shapes all the news, and we should be mindful of it. You certainly see it here with this reopening. We, you certainly see it in the negative, derogatory coverage in the national press of Brian Kemp. Although, we, we got to be honest why that progressive, nasty, derogatory coverage of Brian Kemp is there. White guilt. That's right. You heard me. White guilt has a lot to do with the negative coverage of Brian Kemp. You see... Many of the reporters out there are liberal progressives and they've got white guilt. They loved Beto O'Rourke in 2018. They loved him. It was a passionate, thigh-sweating love for Beto O'Rourke by members of the national press. Yes, I just said that. And they ignored Stacey Abrams completely. All of the media coverage was about Beto versus Cruz. And it turns out that Abrams did better in Georgia than Beto did against Cruz. Came close, came close, but Beto lost to Ted Cruz. And on the night of the election, it turns out Stacey Abrams almost made it to a runoff with Brian. Now, she wouldn't have won the runoff, and that's something the media misses, is Stacey Abrams would not have won the runoff. But the media has felt guilty about it ever since, and Andrew Gillum, too. Boy, Andrew Gillum, man. Um, but yes, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams got ignored by the media. And the media believes now it was because of the media's own racism. See, had, had Stacey Abrams been white and Andrew Gillum been white, the media believes that they themselves would have covered them differently. That they believed a black person couldn't win in Florida or Georgia. And it was their own racism that induced them to believe this. So now they got to go gangbusters and apologizing for it. They've got to hate Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis beat Gillum, and they've got to hate Brian Kemp because Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams. They've got to do it as a form of penance. They've got to do it as a form of justification uh, for their, their or a way to get beyond their lack of coverage of Gillum and Abrams. They are compelled to hate DeSantis and Kemp because they did not do enough to help Gillum and Abrams when both came closer 
than Beto did in Texas. And all of these progressive white reporters did these fawning profiles of Beto O'Rourke and his Kennedy-like good looks. And then remember, he's going to run for president after this. He's going to run for president. That didn't turn out so well, did it? Man, poor old Beto O'Rourke. You know, you, you do have to give it to Beto. Beto had all this 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 fawning praise from the press, got a Vanity Fair profile when he runs for president, and is completely tone deaf. The very same reporters who wanted him to challenge Ted Cruz hated the fact that he would run for president. How dare he? Who does he think he is? Well, he's the guy you people said was Kennedy-esque. When you're calling him Kennedy-esque, surely you want him to run for governor or for president or something. Nope, nope. Just wanted him to beat Ted Cruz because they hated Ted Cruz. Little did Beto O'Rourke know. Beto O'Rourke may be one of the few politicians in America in the last five years to have believed his press. And now those members of the press have turned on him. They feel betrayed by him. And they got to build up Stacey Abrams. And to build up Stacey Abrams, you've got to destroy Brian Kemp because Brian Kemp beat her. Penance requires the destruction of the opponent. And remember, with secularism, you don't have a God to take care of justice and vengeance for you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. No, no. Vengeance is mine, saith the progressive who's got to repent and take matters into his own hands to deliver his heaven on earth. you got to take out Brian Kemp. Punishment for beating Stacey Abrams. It's penance by the members of the press. Gavin Newsom deserves good credit in California. He's actually been fairly competent in this. He's maybe been more aggressive than he should have in some cases, but he's, he's been a fairly steady hand. But so is Brian Kemp in Georgia. You just won't get members of the media to acknowledge that about Kemp because he beat Stacey Abrams and they must destroy him now. You are warned. You are warned. Yes, you are. At 1215, you're going to get a recipe. If you want a recipe, you'll get the recipe. The recipe is uh, jerk chicken marinade. It's for chicken legs, but you can use breast or thighs. Uh, whatever you like, you can even use wings. Um, but it, it's designed for like, it was, I did it this weekend. It was really good. Uh, if you want it, text the word recipe to 33777. That's 33777. And you will get the recipe. At 12.15 and tomorrow you will get my uh, meat rub recipe for barbecue. And then I've got something, uh, that's Wednesday. Uh, so, you, you, no, 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 yeah, that's Wednesday. And then Thursday, I put in a recipe. What is my recipe for Thursday? I don't know, but you'll get one on Thursday as well. If you want these recipes, they're, they're logged in, they're ready to go. It is uh, recipe to 33777. The jerk one is really good. And you can you can you can gauge the heat for yourself. So okay, we got other stuff we got to talk about. The New York Times decided. You know how at Christmas, the New York Times and other publications always run uh, Mary was raped stories, or at Easter Mary was raped, or the resurrection wasn't real, Jesus isn't real. There, uh, on and on it goes. Um, and and the Mary is raped stuff. You you get it all the time. You know it. You hear this stuff all the time at Christmas. The New York Times, the Washington Post, all of them love to run these uh, atheist exposés, if you will, uh, every holiday season. Well, it's memorial was Memorial Day weekend, and you know what the New York Times decided to run? White supremacy in the military how the American military has kept up with white supremacy. I was fairly critical of the president when he first started saying that the press was the enemy of the people. And, and I still think it's too broad 
a statement. But I also increasingly think it actually, there is a there there. I actually do think at this point that there are some people who within the the apparatus of media institutions really do not like institutions of Americanness. They don't like capitalism. They don't like the free market. They don't like the military. They don't like the president. They don't like you. They don't like me. They don't like Jesus. They don't like churches. They don't like anything about the United States. You know, it's like, for example, I read, so let let me just, you know, some people call a trailer part mac and cheese. I, I, I like me some Kraft macaroni and cheese. I really do. It was my go-to comfort food when I was in college. I would just eat Kraft macaroni and cheese. And I realized it, it, it's horrible for some, it, it, disgusting for some. People don't like it. But it was just a go-to food. But yeah, you read, for example, the New York Times, the food section, and it's just dripping with disdain for anyone who would eat it. Some of you may, but it's like putting ketchup on your hot dog, which I put ketchup on. If it's meat, ketchup's got to go on it. But you read some of the stuff from the New York Times, and and you're just thinking, um, this is this is crazy. This is crazy talk. This is this is contempt for Americanness. And in fact, it is contempt for Americanness that you get in the New York Times these days. And it's not just the New York Times. It, it, it's elsewhere as well. There's just dripping with contempt and condescension for the institutions of the United States. Well, consider con- consider how much the New York Times and others have gone overboard hating on Facebook and hating on the, these conservative sites. H- how much uh, hate has Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire gotten in the New York Times, among others? And yet, here the New York Times is running a fawning profile of Occupy Democrats, a super fringy Facebook site that's based on anti-conservative, anti-Republican memes. How immigrant twin brothers are beating Trump's team on Facebook. Occupy Democrats, a Facebook page that Rafael and Omar Rivero started eight years ago, has emerged as a counterweight to the right-wing meme machines. And it is a fawning profile of a group that peddles half-truths, lies, and mythology on Facebook. And yet the New York Times is praising it because they're beating Donald Trump's team. All of the sins that the New York Times blasted They now praise because the Democrats are doing them. Hypocrisy knows no bounds when it comes to the press.